0: several questions uh, already that I'll I'll walk through, but also a chance for you to ask all the questions that have just been right at the tip of your tongue and you've been hesitant to ask. Next next week's your shot, so uh, uh, make sure you come ready for that. Let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer. God, I thank you that through the power of your Spirit we have hope, and so God, I pray for those this morning where that hope feels distant. God, I pray that you will point their eyes to Christ, Um, and as as we struggle through difficult circumstances, the brokenness of life, God, I pray that our hope will not be in this life, but in the next. I think of the family that Joanne just told me about, the Robinson family, God, who lost a loved one this week. God, encourage them. I pray that you will meet them in their heartache. I pray that if they don't know Jesus, that you would open their eyes to him and the hope they can have through Christ. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, just to kind of remind you of where we've tracked so far, uh, we lay the foundation. I keep hitting this every time because it's really the most important part, and that's that tough times will come to everyone, but God also promises to walk through those days with us. Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. We've kind of walked through kind of understanding uh, the terms and the parameters uh, that we're in And then we've been working through treating fear, anxiety, and depression, and we said uh, it's particularly important to understand the connection between shame and the gospel. Because uh, when we're walking through life, we're always listening to voices, and shame tells us that we have to do something to cleanse ourselves, to kind of make up for our own deficit to cleanse ourselves and to be forgiven, but the gospel says that in Christ Jesus bore our shame and there's nothing we can do uh, to make ourselves more acceptable, more forgiven. Jesus is enough. And so as we walk through what it means to treat fear, anxiety, anxiety and depression, last time we began walking through four basic Models. We looked at the first of these last week. The four are the psychological, emotional, medical, and spiritual model. And last week, uh, we looked together at the psychological model. And so we're going to jump into the other three models today, starting with the emotional model. Now, emotional doesn't necessarily mean that you have a a more emotional disposition than other people. So if you're a very emotional person, you may not get a pass here. But it basically means that depression is caused by negative emotional experiences. Uh, So based upon uh, your life, your background in life, it could look like a lack of love. So there's some deficit that you experience, um, experience as a child. Perhaps you didn't have uh, loving parents or kind of a, a good family situation or maybe as as an adult you're in a difficult relationship and and that uh that uh, that emotional experience evidences itself in a lack of love a kind of really terrible form of that is active abuse so uh lack of love is kind of looking at the deficit you're not receiving love uh like you need to receive to be emotionally fulfilled Active abuse is kind of the the opposite side of that, but a more negative look at that. And it's not only are you not receiving love in in its place, you're receiving some form of abuse. uh, Physical abuse, emotional abuse, uh, some sort of of abuse that is kind of wrecking your ability to function normally. Or traumatic experiences. Uh, Now, this can be similar kind of in feel or theme. To abuse, but not necessarily—it's not necessarily harm enacted upon you by another. It might be something that you've experienced. Maybe you had a, a terrible accident, and then an accident kind of has these ongoing consequences. Uh, if you have—if uh, you serve in some sort of kind of first responder type role or in a military role, PTSD would fall into this. There are traumatic experiences, and those experiences have ongoing consequences for your life. It uh, can even be the death of a loved one, destruction, a lack of natural resources. And so the emotional model at some level recognizes that life is hard. And because life is hard, life also hurts and that we all struggle to cope with this. Well, whether we can function normally or not, we all have to recognize that at some level, this is an experience that's universal to everyone. We all, at some level, will wrestle through hard things or things that are emotionally disappointing. So how do you deal with this? Well, emotional regulation and emotional therapy attempt to teach us how to regulate our, our emotions in a way that helps us cope with the negative emotions. So we all have some kind of some set of positive emotions, some set of negative emotions, and emotional therapy teaches us to try to, to regulate. You know, for instance, look on the bright side. Uh, the sun will come out. Tomorrow, this kind of thing, that's that's kind of a light form of emotional therapy. It's teaching us both to kind of, so if there's a normal range of human emotion to operate within that, as well as to kind of compensate for negative emotions. Uh, So in some ways, this is uh, connected to psychotherapy, kind of the first category we looked at. It's a therapeutic discipline, but it's not looking so much at the psychology of it as it's focusing on the emotion of uh, depression. So it's not merely mental, it's uh, emotional. It's sort of emotion first and then mental processes. So uh, the psychotherapy or psychology you would kind of say is the opposite. It's kind of the the, the mental side first and then emotion. And this is the flip side of that. It's emotion first. So is there a connection between our emotions and our thinking? Of course there is. And so that's why both of these models exist because of the connection between those. So now we'll move from the emotional model to the, the medical model. This is our third model, and really it's perhaps uh, the most common treatment. It's what we most commonly associate with treatment, uh, really of of anything, and certainly um, emotional or psychological illness. Often, though, it doesn't exist on its own. It's uh, combined often with other approaches. Uh, So you might be getting medicated, but you might also be going to therapy. And so this happens also to be a somewhat... Uh, sensitive area of discussion. So there are all kinds of opinions on medicine and what its, it's role is. And so it can be a little bit uh, tricky to walk through. Now, I'm going to say something that will just shock you here. And, and th- the shocking thing is that I'm not a medical doctor. So that means there are certain things I'm not really qualified to address or to say. And so since I'm not a medical doctor, I don't want to pretend to be one, nor do I pretend to be one. And so there are certain things in terms of kind of expertise that, that are beyond uh, the scope of what I can say, although I've, I've tried to, uh, at some level, uh, input a good bit of help from, from those who, who can speak to this more directly. Um, I'll also say that just by, by approach personally, I'm slow to recommend medicine as a treatment. But I also don't make particular recommendations as it relates to coming off of medication. In other words, I may have opinions, but I don't have expertise, and so that's not really that's not an area where I, I spend a lot of time diving into. Uh, I want to take an, a minute here, and then we're, we're going to look at a couple of uh, quotes together. The first is from Dr. David Murray. Uh, Dr. Murray is professor of Old Testament and practical theology at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He's a solid evangelical. He's an inheritance. He believes in the sufficiency of Scripture. And uh, he's written a, a helpful but relatively short book that he calls, that's entitled, Christians Get Depressed Too. Christians Get Depressed Too. I mentioned his credentials, that he's a seminary professor who believes in the sufficiency of Scripture and the authority of Scripture because of the quote that we're going to look at now. He's not a, he's not a, a psychologist. He's actually just a, a student of theology and Scripture. So he says, There is much scientific evidence to support the drug treatment model. Studies have demonstrated that the brains of many depressed patients have a different chemistry and circuitry compared to people with good mental and emotional health. Uh, to put it simply, the brain needs chemicals to move our thoughts through. When these chemicals are depleted, then the whole process slows down or even stops in certain areas. Uh, Now, you may or may not be aware, this is somewhat of a controversial opinion. I'm just highlighting this because he's a a very conservative theologian who at some level is saying that that he believes this to be true. We'll look at another quote from a a book I've also recommended from Ed Welch's book on depression, Looking Up from the Stubborn Darkness. And he kind of, uh, remember we started this by... Kind of talking about our target. Our target isn't ultimately to alleviate pain; it's ultimately to learn to trust God in the midst of pain. And so Ed Welch says the concern at this point is is not whether or not you are taking medication, but that medication does not become your only plan of attack. Even if medication relieves some of the burden of depression, it may be functioning like aspirin—that is, it takes away some of the symptoms, but the root problems persist. In other words. You know, if, if you were uh, experiencing extreme pain and they put you on morphine and you're like, oh, I'm good, would you think you'd been healed? Well, you shouldn't because you haven't addressed the, the cause of the pain. And, and at some level, uh, what we're walking through here is saying we don't want to just medicate the pain. We want to actually try to deal with, with the root problem, with, with the cause itself. And we're going to come back to this, but note that there seems to be both warrant for Christians using medication in some instances as well as caution against doing it without giving any thought to whether you should be doing it um, and without any thought for the relationship between medication and the active work of Christ in your life by the power of his spirit. So there are kind of, kind of two extremes, and one is to say, well, I just need medicine, and, and that's really my only hope, and the other is to say that it, it, it can't ever or shouldn't ever play any role. And So the question is, how, how, what role does it play? Well, broadly speaking, there are three categories of drugs that uh, medication fits into in terms of treating anxiety or treating depression in our world today and so uh, the first is anti-anxiety medication and then anti-depression medication and then anti-psychotic medication and we're going to briefly discuss these for a minute here before uh, drawing any conclusions and as I said I'm an amateur here I'm, I'm merely parroting uh, what, what others have written or what others have, have told me personally. And so if you want questions answered more directly, you can talk to a medical professional, someone who can address that uh, more directly. So in terms of anti-anxiety medication, it's often used in conjunction with therapy. So we said often these models will go together. So it's not like, you know, if you dive into one model that you're exclusive from the others. Medi- medicine is often used in conjunction with uh, something else. The most common type of anti-anxiety medication addresses symptoms by reducing abnormal electrical activity in the brain. So it kind of, I'll say, deadens your responses a little bit. And notice there that this addresses symptoms. It's not really, it's not a treatment for root causes. So uh, things that would fall into this category might be Xanax or Valium, and, and you may have heard their names or maybe even um, have experienced those. So uh, those, when you're experiencing something like this, they often initially receive quick results uh, but lessen in their effectiveness over time. At the same time, uh, to kind of quit medication, cold turkey can lead to withdrawal symptoms similar to what an alcoholic experiences if they, if they try to stop drinking cold turkey, just that the, uh, you get the shakes or, or similar type symptoms. Um, side effects of these, uh, of these medicines can include drowsiness. Some of you are like, I'm not even on that. I got that. Uh, Dizziness, nausea, blurred vision, uh, headaches, confusion, tiredness or fatigue, or nightmares. And so uh, it's like any other medication. These medications come with their own set of kind of intended effects and then also side effects. Uh, The second category is anti-depression medicine. And so this kind of medicine, antidepressants, seek to address symptoms by changing the balance of brain chemicals called neurotransmitters. Now I'll say there's a lot, a lot of debate over, over whether this is real science or not, whether these kind of chemicals exist or not. But these little guys, these neurotransmitters help manage your mood. So what kind of uh, things fall into this category? Prozac, Zoloft, those are names you're likely familiar with that would fall into uh, this category. And so what these uh, medicines are doing, they're addressing serotonin levels in your brain. Um, though we don't really understand exactly how they work. So there's this, this chemical you need, serotonin, they, they kind of regulate the level of that, even though even those who are experts in this aren't exactly how it, how it affects it. Side effects of this could include nausea, nervousness or restlessness, dizziness, reduced sexual desire, drowsiness, insomnia, weight gain or loss, headache, dry mouth, vomiting, and most pleasant of all, diarrhea. So, uh, you know, each, each comes with a set of effects and a set of side effects. The, the third kind of medicine is anti-psychotic medicine. And so uh, someone struggling with psychosis is kind of, I'll say, is like in, in another level from someone struggling with anxiety. This person tends to completely lose touch with reality. Maybe they hear voices or they live in an alternate reality of their own making. They kind of create their world and live in it. Now, some of you may say, well, I think I know normal people who kind of live in their own reality. Uh, They just tend to be a little narcissistic, and so, you know, they kind of live, they make their own rules and define their own truth. But here we're talking about uh, people who have definable symptoms. Uh, Because this person lives in another world, they may completely neglect their physical appearance because they live in the other world, kind of their appearance in this world uh, doesn't matter, and they uh, don't function normally in life in terms of relationships. Uh, So uh, you've certainly heard the terms uh, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, and they're associated with this class of illness. Bipolar disorder can also manifest itself in depression. They're not the same thing, but it can manifest itself that way, not kind of a a manic-like psychosis. So there are different ways that it manifests itself. Again, these medications don't cure the illness. So if you're taking antipsychotic medication, it doesn't uh, cure it, but they can dramatically alleviate the symptoms and make it possible to function uh, somewhat normally. This, med- this medication controls uh, dopamine. So we talked about so antidepressant controls what? Serotonin. These would control dopamine, which is another neurotransmitter in the brain. Uh, if you take this, you also get some side effects, blurred vision, dry mouth, drowsiness, muscle spasms, or weight gain. So how do we think about these various categories of medicine? And I'll say... Um, part of the, I, I always tread lightly here because there are going to be people sitting in this room that think you should never take it. And there are going to be people thinking in this room that you cannot function without it if you have any of these things. The first is this third category. If you prescribe an antipsychotic medication, you need to be on it. And, uh, so so it's, 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 it's not the kind of thing where you, you, you don't mess around with that. So, and this is in part because when the medication wears off the effects can be deeply disturbing and possibly dangerous, especially if you're hearing voices in your head. Uh, so I, now, I also say this, as, as Christians, and given what we see in Scripture, I mean, some of this is certainly medically or psychologically trackable. I also think, you know, we live in a, in a world where science is everything, evidence is everything. Man, we wrestle against principalities and powers, and I do believe that in a lot of this, there is demon, demonic energy behind some of this. I read recently uh, a terrible story about a, a man in Colorado who killed uh, his wife or ex-wife and children. And as I read, um, I read what he says. I woke up that morning and there was something telling me in my head I had to do this today. I knew, like it was like I couldn't help myself. I had to go there and I had to do this and he did it. It was terrible. And I like, I hear that and I'm like, okay, I can't, I mean, as far as I know, I've never seen a demon But if if that's a description of one, I mean, that sounds exactly like that. That sounds like those voices in Legion's Head and and the the demoniac in the Bible. That sounds like what's going on. So I think there is a lot of that in terms of this. But because the effects of psychosis are so severe, it's not something that you want to mess mess around with. Uh, Secondly, anti-anxiety medicine and, and antidepressants can be aids in fighting depression and anxiety. But as believers, we should regularly and prayerfully assess our dependence on them. So what I want to just say is the third category here is kind of its own category. It's a more serious category than either of the first two uh, that we're talking about. Now, one thing that makes it difficult is that there is a problem with, with the medical model. And if you ever watch any TV, read anything, or listen to anything, you know that this is true, that big pharmaceutical is big business, so there's a lot of money behind this conversation, which makes it difficult. Uh, there's money behind everything in our culture. We've kind of commoditized everything, which means it's, it's, it makes it hard to know who's truly being objective. There are millions upon millions upon millions of dollars invested in advertising to us, and not just to us, to medical professionals. But if you want to make big money, you go into like, pharmaceutical sales. At least if you're good at it, you can make a lot of money in it. And you, you visit doctor's office. And, this, and so it's difficult to know who's objective and who's not. And so sometimes the desire to give people help can be affected by greed. Now, I'm not saying here that that doctors are greedy. I think doctors are are in it to help people, but just that this is a part of our culture that we may or may not be aware even of how it affects us. And just to kind of demonstrate how this is true, since the mid-1990s, the prescribing of antidepressants has jumped astronomically. And so over the last 20, 30 years, and I mean, whether anything else here is debatable or not, this is not debatable, that the statistics in terms of those who are prescribed antidepressants has just ballooned. So today, one in 10 Americans is on antidepressants, and for middle-aged women, that number jumps to one in four. So 25% of middle-aged women are on some sort of antidepressant medication. There are many reasons for this, and some of those reasons may be kind of advances in the medical field that help us diagnose and treat mental illness. However, that being said, uh, an April 2013 study from uh, the journal Psychotherapy and Psycho- Psychosomatic notes this. Nearly two-thirds of a sample of more than 5,000 patients who've been given a diagnosis of depression within the previous 12 months did not meet the criteria for major depressive episode as described by the psychiatrist's Bible, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of mental disorders, or DSM. So to, to, to break that out, two thirds of people prescribed antidepressants don't meet the criteria necessary for being prescribed that medicine. Now to put this in another field, uh, my wife's uncle is he is he eighty? Yet? Is Uncle Dave eighty? He's in his seventies at least. Um, but he's been he's been battling uh, cancer for some time, and he lives in Detroit. He's uh, retired from Ford, long time there, and and so he's. Uh, A number of years ago, diagnosed with cancer, been going through a series of treatments for this cancer. Well, uh, his doctor made headlines because Uncle Dave really does have cancer, but Uncle Dave was one of many patients who this doctor prescribed uh, a series of treatments that the the patients didn't actually need. And so they received uh, different sorts of medicine or chemotherapy, and this is malpractice. And, because, and you do this, and you, you can charge it, so I guess you can make extra money, but the bad news for this doctor is now he's in prison because of his malpractice. Okay, so I'm just saying, like, in cancer, if you, if you prescribe treatment that the person doesn't need, you can get locked up. But, but we know, and we have verified that there are doctors all over the place prescribing medicine for people who do not need that medicine. Now, if you're in any sort of medical field, you know how difficult this is. So I have some uh, friends who are ER doctors. And in the ER you deal with people all the time and they're there, a lot of them are there because they, they need prescription drugs. They're addicted to some sort of uh, prescription pain medication and they're, they're there to try to get it. It's a very, very tedious and tenuous situation to be in where there's an addict and, and you're the person, I mean essentially you're the drug supplier for this person. And, and this person shows up and they're desperate and they keep showing up. And sometimes it's easier to say, go, take it and go away. And, and that happens, uh, this, this uh we're not talking about the same sort of medication, but that happens also with antidepressants as well, as in doctors prescribe it because our doctors, psychologists, no, our doctors, physici- physicians of the soul. In other words, can they help with soul care? No. So what do they need to do? We'll just give them something and, and, and it'll kind of make them go away. So two thirds of patients that are on these medications statistically shouldn't be on those. Now, it's I'm not here, like I said, I'm not, I, can't, I can't make the uh, determination of whether you should be or shouldn't be. I'm just saying that should give us real pause in terms of how we deal with deal this. On top of this, anti-anxiety medication in particular uh, tends to be quite addictive. And, and uh, like we mentioned earlier, it can lead to symptoms like an alcoholic to the point of withdrawal that can, that can cause you to die. So these are highly addictive medications that can lead to withdrawal and your body shuts down. So in other words, there are a lot of conflicting signals, and there are also a lot of kind of conv- conflicting underlying factors that make it difficult to, uh, to sort through this. So uh, some thoughts about the medical model. So with all this being said, how should you think through the role of medicine if you struggle with anxiety or depression? And the first thing is just to ask God for wisdom. I mean, so these aren't, they, they, they aren't, black and white issues. I mean, sometimes there's clear right and wrong, but a lot of times there's not clear right and wrong. And so James 1 tells us to ask God for wisdom. Secondly, prayerfully evaluate the use of medication in light of Ephesians 5.18. It says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So in other words, we want to be under the control of the Spirit of God, not under the control of medication. To be clear, I want to be real clear here, I am not recommending that, that if you're on medication that you drop it or that you tell someone else to drop it. That's not your role, nor should you do that, and I don't think uh, that's my role. You should consult with a medical professional. But if you've been on antidepressants or anti-anxiety medicine for a long time, evaluate things prayerfully and make it a practice to take stock from time to time. Don't just assume. So this, this is a, a difficult conversation, but we just ask God uh, for wisdom and then prayerfully evaluate kind of our own choices. So this brings us to uh, the fourth model, which I'm calling the spiritual model. Now, no, I'm not calling it the biblical model. Uh, that's because that, that assumes a lot, and it also, at some level, it maybe even could be unhelpful. Kind of at one extreme, it could be manipulative. In other words, if we lean into it too hard, it's like I speak with authority that maybe God's word doesn't give us here. And so as we transition into this, what we want to do is, is evaluate at some level, so if you're taking, you know, if you have chronic pain and you're taking a pain reliever for years and you've never once thought about addressing the underlying causes of that pain, all I'm trying to get you to do is just to pause and say, okay, what, what, what underlies this? And it may be that you don't know. So sometimes there, there are people with, with treatment plans and all we're able to do is say, we don't know, but we can, you know, manage the symptoms. So, I mean, there are, there are other, other illnesses like shingles or fibromyalgia. They're very difficult uh, to track. And so, and if you struggle with that, almost sometimes you feel like, well, I'm going to be on the outside and people are going to throw stones at me. That is really, really, really uh, the opposite of what I want to do here. I just want to say, look, as, 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 uh, as Christians, we just want to prayerfully evaluate and ask God uh, for wisdom. So we, want, we certainly want to address symptoms. What we really want to do is get real help. And so even within the spirit, so we've talked through the, uh, the, the psychological, emotional, and medical models. Well, now we're going to talk through uh, what we're going to put in the realm of the spiritual model. And even here, we have a range of kind of approaches or treatment options. At one end of the spectrum, you have what is uh, called newthetic counseling. Newthetic counseling, newthetic is a word that basically uh, Jay Adams, who is a pastor for a long time in the upstate, uh, he, he essentially, he didn't make it up, he took it from a Greek word. But uh, the counseling movement, there's a group called NANC, National Association of Nuthetic Counselors. And this group tends to see depression as a result of sin. Uh, sometimes they can be too cut and dry and doesn't maybe wrestle with complexity of human makeup. Um, and, but if you're like me, you know that sin always looks to the, uh, it's close to the surface of anything we do in our relationships and certainly in the way that we uh, think and feel. That being said, we know that sin isn't the direct cause of all of our ills and so it can be a, a little, bit, uh, new, bit, little bit complex. So the new Thetic Counseling Movement, so that's kind of the older version of what now is sometimes called gospel-centered counseling or maybe biblical counseling. So they're, they're related, but it's kind of, um, you know, parent and child or grandchild. So they're, they're related, but not the same. And this movement uh, sees the gospel as our only hope, the gospel as a center of our sanctification, and is willing to leave some room for medical and other treatments. Um, and I would say at some level, this is where I would, I would tend to fit. Uh, sometimes you'll hear the term biblical counseling, or you might hear of the group CCEF, Christian Counseling and Education Foundation. But I'm going to throw out uh, a different term, and it's not because, I mean, I'm sure someone else has said it, but in some ways to me it's, it's more helpful, and that's uh, a holistical, holistic spiritual model. So to kind of help us clarify this, let's ask a question. Should a doctor or a counselor or a pastor address depression well the answer is yes it's a little bit of a trick question and this is because we are complex beings however because we're bible believing christians we also deal with this that people in other fields of study typically aren't committed to the sufficiency of scripture so it's not that these other other treatments aren't ever necessary but it's difficult because often they are divorced from scripture at all uh, there's my question. I should have put it up there for you, but I didn't. All right, so we'll, uh, we'll move beyond that. So uh, a pastor uh, in England in the 20th century, in fact, some people say um, he, he was the, the most influential evangelical preacher in the early part of the 20th century, and then kind of got Billy Graham later. So David Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was... Um, a part of a, a movement called the Calvinistic Methodists. You don't really know that's such a thing because those things kind of sound like an oxymoron. But he was a pastor in England for quite a while. And before he became a pastor, he was a medical doctor. And so he has, he has a book um, on spiritual depression, but this is from a different book called The Christian Warfare. He says, many Christian people, in fact, are in utter ignorance concerning this realm where the borderlines between the physical, psychological, and spiritual meet. Frequently I've found that such uh, church leaders had treated those whose trouble was obviously mainly physical or psychological in a purely spiritual manner. And if you do so, you not only don't help, you aggravate the problem. Uh, So in other words, he's he's sort of chiding, you know, people like me thinking they can address medical or, or physical problems. And so there is a complexity, we, you know, our, our mind, our will, our emotion, our physical makeup, they're all connected. And so this is very complex. So, so how does this work? How do we uh, take all this and say, okay, we are spiritual beings, but how do we, how do we work through this? And I think maybe the most important thing is that we, that we work through this in humility. Uh, so it's really easy for me, because I have strong opinions, or for any of us to be dogmatic. You don't need medicine or you can't do without medicine. But we want to interact with uh, humility. Another book I've mentioned, Spurgeon's Sorrows, Zach Eswine, uh, takes from Spurgeon work, Spurgeon's works and he offers s- several reasons that we tend to interact proudly or impatiently uh, with other people as they struggle with uh, their emotional makeup, with depression in particular. Uh, first, we judge others according to our circumstances Uh, rather than theirs in other words rather than kind of seeing where people are we tend to kind of evaluate people based upon our makeup how would i respond to that how would that make me feel in in at one level that's understandable because we all kind of have a perspective and a lens that we interpret life through but that may not be helpful to that person and so we we all have a tendency to do this Uh, sometimes we still think that trite sayings or a raised voice can heal deep wounds hey, brother, God works all things for good. Well, this doesn't feel very good. Is that true? That's a true statement. That is a true statement. Does God work all things for good to those who love? Yeah, it's, it's a true statement. It might not be a helpful thing to say right then. And so wisdom is kind of knowing when to apply it. Or just stop it. Would you just stop this? And if you've ever dealt with someone in a very, um, in, in a very kind of emotionally depressed state, there are times when it can be frustrating because you just want to, like, would you just stop this? This is so dumb. That don't work. It, you know, it's, it's, it's just not helpful. And so we kind of have a way of dealing with it, either with trite sayings um, or it's all going to be okay. It really might not be okay. And, and so we have kind of a way that we want to approach it. Thirdly, says we try to control what, sh- what should be rather than to surrender uh, to what is. So um, you know, speaking of creating your own reality, we kind of we wish something, and so we're going kind to of, kind of counsel or pound in a way that is different than the actual circumstances than someone is experiencing, and fourthly, we resist humility regarding our own lack of experiences. And uh, and th- this is difficult because we all have a set of shared experience, but then we all have a set of unique experiences. And even uh, you know, you can take this if you have multiple kids. You know this, but I look at my family, so we got a lot of you know different test cases. You know, nine kids. At some level, I mean, well, we all have the same two parents, but man, if you look at us now, our our, our mental and personal, emotional makeup is very different. And so at some level, you know, it's like you can say, well, we had shared experiences, but those experiences affected all of us very differently. And if you, if you take someone like me, you know, I was 24 when my dad died, my sister was five. Like, we almost lived different, different lives uh, in terms of she remembers my dad through our memories, whereas I remember him through my own memories. And so we all need some hum- humility in terms of, our experiences. So how should we think through uh, treatment like this? Uh, First is commit yourself to the sufficiency of Scripture and the power of the Spirit to use the Word of God and particularly lean into the Psalms. So there, this is, there's, a, there's a lot in this statement, the sufficiency of scripture. This is an important doctrine in the life of the church, and that is that God's word is enough. It meets every need. Now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't work in other ways or through other means, but it does mean that God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness in his word. Now, a lot of us approach this and say, well, God doesn't you know, God isn't enough or God's word isn't enough. And so we, got to, we, we start with a premise that is different than what is actually true. And I mean, 2 Timothy 3 tells us that scripture is, is sufficient for, uh, for everything. And I particularly mention the psalms here because the psalms, more than any other section of scripture, kind of uh, communicate the, the, kind of the full range of human emotion. We think of psalms as praise. And there are psalms of praise give, give, give God the glory that he deserves. But there's also a whole category of Psalms that we call Psalms of lament. Well, what's a lament? It's a cry of pain. It's, it's, it's a lament. It's, it's a grieving. And so uh, it's like, I think it's Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was the first one to speak those words. He quoted them and he prayed them on the cross. But that, that is a Psalm that God's people sang. It's, it's, it's the experience of some people, some of God's people throughout history, that they have uh, times and periods where they feel like, God, are you there? Why have you left me here all alone? Jesus was, at some level, speaking of the experience of, of th- that other human beings who believe in God have experienced. So the Psalms aren't just a songbook, but they're really a manual for helping us understand human emotion, or like David in Psalm 42 saying uh, that uh, my soul longs after God like the deer pants for water, pants, pants for the flowing stream. And so the Psalms, I'm just, uh, just encourage you, if you find yourself either kind of struggling yourself or wondering how to help other people, it's a great place to start because they're just honest. Uh, they're honest about kind of the ups. They're honest about the downs of what it means to be a human being in a fallen world. Secondly, Uh, Trust the sovereignty of God in the grace of the gospel. I mean, recognize that though your depression personally may not be caused by sin, that sin is like a twin; it's a bedfellow of all our emotions. You know, if you if you feel very joyful, you might begin to think independently of God. If you feel very sad, you might feel abandoned by God. It's difficult for us uh, to to diagnose our emotions because they can turn from relatively good to sinful really, really quickly. You know, if you're, if you're a, a generous kind of person, you give a gift. Well, then you also what? You hope to receive some sort of love in return. And so it's, it's real quick, you know, that our, our, good, our good motives can turn uh, bad. If you ang- tend to be angry, you can lash out in selfish emotion, sad. You believe that God isn't enough. If you're afraid, you can fear man more than trust the sovereign goodness of God. So this means that repentance and faith, they are how you come to faith in Christ, but they're also part of what it means to walk with God, um, and so if you get every other treatment wrong, but you get the gospel right, you'll find yourself uh, an eternally joyful son or daughter of God. So one day you'll be free from this um, with God, with an inheritance reserved in heaven, and Christ will be your brother. So you have to trust the sovereignty of God, which is that God is working things in this moment and you cannot see them. You may not even want to accept them, and they may not be fun, but at some level God is working things, and, and if, if God is working all things for good in this moment, You have to trust that, even if in this moment you can't see, but you can also trust God's grace in the gospel. Third, um, you can ask God for wisdom. So recognize if you don't have all the answers, that's okay. And if you don't have the answers for someone else's problems, that's okay too. Uh, Fourthly, lean into the community of faith. So God works through his word, through his people, through prayer, through the ordinances. And these are vital to our spiritual health. So what does depression do? It tells us it's better to be alone. It tempts us to withdraw. But that's the opposite of what you should do. All right, and finally, we'll we'll close this with uh, another quote from Ed Welch. Depression does not necessarily mean that you have... Depression does not necessarily have a spiritual cause. If by spiritual, we mean that it is caused by our own sin. But there is a broader meaning to the word spiritual. And in this sense... Your depression is always and profoundly spiritual. Spiritual can refer to the very center of our being where, a ba- where our basic allegiances are worked out. Who is God and do we trust him? So the kind of the, the conclusion would be, do we know God? Do we trust him? And if we rest in him, we'll find that he will sustain you by his grace in spite of your depression, in spite of anxiety or any other struggle. So God is working good in all of our circumstances. He tells us that this, this is true. Our experience preaches to us something different, that this isn't good, that this doesn't feel good. If it doesn't feel good, it can't be good. So the question is, can we rest in God's goodness, and God's control beyond what we can see, and can we know him and can we trust him in the middle of these uh, difficult circumstances? All right, that brings us to the conclusion of the, this discussion of treatment. I'm sure we answered all of your questions as it relates to this. Uh, just kidding. It's it's very it's a very difficult, complex uh, set of set of ideas to work through. Any any questions as it relates to any of this? Thought about waiting this week, just kind of awkwardly long until someone had a question. Right. Uh that's a good question. She, she so I quoted the statistic uh one out of four women are on middle-aged women are on depra- antidepressants. Um I believe that's US um I couldn't couldn't swear to that but I I, I believe that that's true. David Right Yeah, um, so I was listening this week to something about about a new book on lament, which says that uh, lament is basically a a cry of pain that moves us to trust. And so in terms of someone, she, she asked, okay, someone's struggling with something and it causes them to doubt or lose faith. And I would say be honest. I mean, God, why have you forsaken me? God, I feel like right now you are absent. God, where are you? God, why am I experiencing this? And, and that's the difficulty, you know, sovereignty is a term that makes people nervous. I don't have any way of getting around it in that there are, there are circumstances that we all experience that we cannot explain or really say how a good God could allow this to happen. And, and so I just say be honest uh, with God about that. Jesus was on the cross and certainly the Psalms are. But then... There's a way of, I'll say, accusing God that is faithless. And there's a way of lamenting to God that is like, God, I just don't see it. You tell me you're good, but I do not see it right now. So I'm going to trust that you got this, that you're in control, and that somehow this is good. But it sure does not feel good. And and I think sometimes the exercise of faith in, in, in difficulty can... Can move you to an experience of faith that is more real and more personal than if you never had the pain in the first place. So, I mean, I've had uh, many other painful experiences since, but the the experience of losing my dad unexpectedly was, I mean, I still, it was just a traumatic event in my life and the life of my family. And I can uh, remember, like, if if I'm just being honest, I really don't, humanly speaking, know why it was better for him to die when he did than, like, for God to allow him to raise all his children. It was a lot harder on my mom, a lot harder on everyone. I don't know. Like if I'm saying, humanly speaking, what's good about that, I'm not sure. Faith makes me say, God, I don't see it. I know that you're in control, and I'll trust that it's good because you tell me that it is. Humanly speaking, I say, okay, well, I had the privilege of leading two of my brothers to faith in Christ after that, but maybe that wouldn't have happened, and it would still be good. So I would say be honest, but then also... Just ask God for faith to trust him in the midst of the difficult season. Jeffrey. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, narcissism is interesting because it's, you know, we have MPD, narcissistic personality disorder, but at some level, we're all narcissists. Um, Now, some of us got a little extra spiritual gift of narcissism than others, but um, (laughs) but but at at one level, it's just it's an evidence that we're selfish. You know, we're all selfish, and uh, so they 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 might think John was narcissistic. um, You know, he was a man of conviction, and I would say because John was a human being with a nature like ours, he probably struggled with that. And I say narcissism, we don't all struggle with it to the same degree, but there is a universe. We we all live with the. None of y'all live with a the Joshua-centric theory of the universe. You know, you live with the, the John or the... Like, you live with your own... Like, you don't think about what people think about me when they walk, when I walk into a room. You think about what people think about you when you walk into a room. And that's because at some level for us, you know, we're, we're like before Galileo. You know, the, the, we, everyone thought the, the sun revolves around the earth and it's the other way around. And, and we think the world revolves around us, you know. And, and it's, just not, it's just not true. There are too many of us for the world to revolve around us individually. And so some of us, you know think a little more theory- seriously about that than others. But uh, they might have thought that. I don't know. Ian. Yeah, that that's a good question. Um, and that's certainly something, yeah, that made it Right. I, mean, I th- right. I mean, I think um, a lot of times we don't know what to say. And For me, I just try to be honest, which is say, I don't know what to say. I don't know what you're going through. I'd like to say, I mean, I really want to feel this with you right now. I can't feel it. Um, and just be honest with God. This, this is terrible. This hurts. Uh, God, I don't understand why you would do this. But, but I do believe by faith that God has a plan and he's working good in all of it, no matter what we can see. And, you know, ultimately, you know, if, if, particularly if they don't have a relationship with Christ, you know, they won't see that. Or, and, 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 and at some level, you know, that, that's their first need is to see their, their need of, of Christ that way. But I think be honest about it, like, yeah, it's terrible, and I'm sorry, and I love you, and I'll pray for you, and I don't know what to say. And mm-hmm that's good mm-hmm yeah yep yeah. no that's good well sometimes people are open and looking for help and other times they're just venting and sometimes vent do you ever vent i mean sometimes venting is 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 also a way of you know of dealing with things and uh you know it may not be healthy but it may be the way they're processing and 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 dealing with it so Right, right, Sure. Yeah. Sure, so Of course, I was going to say, one, I mean, one thing that's difficult is that our world allows us to be close to everyone and yet truly close to no one, and those kind of things are best lived out in a personal relationship with someone. And I think over, I do think you, know, you can pray for someone on Facebook. That's different than sitting down and crying with them and holding them or, like, or really walking through something with them, and, and we can't be that for everyone, but maybe for, for the people you know in your home or that at work or that you have personal relationships with to try to live in real uh, meaningful relationships with them because that's the best way to do that. Um, you know, and, and Facebook is good in that it lets, lets us keep in touch, and it's bad in that it lets us keep in touch. You know, it's just it's 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 the uh, it's the the gift and gift and the curse of it. Let's go ahead and uh, I'll close this in prayer. God, thank you for your word. We thank you that you are working good in all of our circumstances, even when we can't see it. And God, I pray that you will help us um, both see and trust by faith that you are working good. See your hand at work as well as uh, God know how to help others. It does require wisdom that we don't have. And so God, we ask for wisdom in Jesus' name, amen.